Dune, Part 1, begins the journey of a man-made messiah toward a holy upheaval that will reform a corrupt and stagnated society. Are you just watching? Episode 122, Dune, Part 1. Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And I've been so excited about this movie. I'm sorry. (laughs) You have been talking about it since, oh, November of last year. (laughs) Like, when are they going to release this movie? I thought you were going to cry when they delayed the release. It it was, uh, you're really invested in this. (laughs) Well... I have always enjoyed Dune. I have read the book, and I have seen the old movie, and I've seen the miniseries that were on the Sci-Fi Channel, whenever that was, I think the 90s. And I wrote a paper on the mythology of Dune in an English class in college my senior year, actually presented it. An academic paper. An academic paper, yes. So this is something that the the story and the mythology behind the story and the humanism that just permeates this uh, humanistic science fiction writer's work is just something that is really cool to talk about. And applying a Christian worldview to it, which I I couldn't do in college because I did not go to a Christian college, I've just been looking forward to this. (laughs) (laughs) As well, I think you should. Yeah. Uh, This is right in your bailiwick. (laughs) Well, it's sort of literary. It's it's kind of a crossover to literary, because when you have a degree in English and you have read all of these dusty classics, there comes a point where you have to make a crossover into uh, futuristic fiction or, or modern fiction, I should say. And I think Frank Herbert, as a writer... His stuff was deep enough that it made that transition from, you know, just current, you know, entertainment to a literary work. And I I think that while it was your standard sci-fi novel of its day, it was so deep and it covered so much politics and religion and all of these higher, you know, topics of discussion that it's just is a deeper work, and they don't write things like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> People don't have the patience for it. <laughs> Where was Frank Herbert? What nationality was he? I think he was American. Oh, that's what Wikipedia says. So, you know, it must be true. <laughs> he was probably, from the era that he wrote, he was probably kind of near the end of the expatriate kind of, you know, when all of the great literary writers of the Americas were considering themselves more European in their influence. Uh, I wonder who Frank Herbert thought of as his literary icon, you know, the person that he strived to be like. The Wikipedia says that John W. Was it John W. Campbell, who was the editor of Analog. Analog magazine. Yep. Looks like they were might have been pretty c- close, but I do know that he based the like the hero culture and the mythology of Dune on Joseph Campbell's writings on mythology. There was a book 
Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell that, that he was using as like source material for the books. So I don't know whether that what? would make that man his hero, but he really <laughs> was heavily influenced by his writing. That's an interesting connection because George Lucas credits Joseph Campbell's works for being a primary influence in Star Wars as well. Well, Star Wars was about the same time or later. It would have been later because Dune was oh, a little much later, later. Yeah, yeah. Dune was written in. Well, he started researching it in fifty nine, and it was published in sixty five. So that predated Star Wars by quite a bit. Yeah, by like fifteen years, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. it's twelve years. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, it's interesting Still. because if you think about it. You know, the the whole idea of the the ancient mythologies, you know, the pantheons of gods and all of that kind of stuff, that they were kind of like ancient superheroes. Yeah. They were kind of to their culture. <laughs> the cultures. MCU of their day. <laughs> yeah, they were the MCU of the day. I mean, they weren't really gods in the way that as Christians, we, we revere God as this supreme being who has power over the entire universe and nothing can contest him. But... You know, mythology takes it completely down to a human level. Yeah. So it's like Greek mythology, mm-hmm. Greek or Roman mythology. They have the the gods have limits and yeah. they have um, domains and all that. So it's great fodder for science fiction. So, you know, it kind of makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I do want to talk about the score for this movie. I mean, I would say, at least watching some of the the little uh, snippets that they had on HBO Max for this movie, mm-hmm. it looked like Hans Zimmer, and I always stumble over the director of this movie. <laughs> His name, uh, Dennis... I'm not even going to try it. <laughs> Villeneuve? Villeneuve? <laughs> they, they actually kind of worked together to create the, like, the environment of this movie, they were both massive fans of the book, and so not just the the way that Den- Denise or Dennis or have you say his name put this uh, movie together. They were the mu- the music is as much a part of the mood as anything, and the music mm. is. I think it's one of those scores that you either love or you hate because I've seen some <laughs> reviews come out saying that it was not Zimmer's best, but. If you listen to the score apart from the movie, I think it it sounds very discordant and out of place, like it's not real music in places. Yeah, yeah. But I think the reason why is because he was writing a score that would fit into the universe of Dune, which mm-hmm. is completely alien to the world we live in, and so the music had to feel alien to really fit that environment. Yeah, this this isn't Bond. I mean, this isn't <laughs> you. You can't expect a uh, a, a Grammy and a, a top ten hit out of the score for a movie like Dune. Yeah, so I I just think that that may have been what the issue was with that is that people typically end up you know listening to the music outside of the movie and that it doesn't make sense as much because you're not getting you know, the, the environment of the movie that the music fills out. And I really felt like the, the music worked and it didn't hurt the fact that when I was watching the movie for the first time, I actually had a music major who's working on his masters, (laughs) getting real excited about the music before we even started 
the movie because he actually knew a person who was singing in the, the choir that oh, did the neat. voices. Yeah. So, yeah, he was like, I got to hear my friend. I'm like, like you're going to pick out one voice and all of those. But <laughs> anyway. You know, when I was singing in the choir, my mother always swore she could hear me. <laughs> That's not a good thing. <laughs> not a compliment. <laughs> You know, I I took it that way. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's a beautiful score. It's an eerie score. It's an alien score. And I'm going to play just a little bit of it here to set the mood for our discussion. I'm going to go all fangirl. It was really funny because when I came in the next day after seeing the movie and my coworkers were concerned that I would hate the movie. And <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know whether I've come across because I've been so publicly open in the fact that I actually liked the original movie, even though it got horrible reviews and the director disowned it. I thought it was a, a well done movie, especially for its time. And I love the thoughtful pace of it. About the only thing that is not good about it is the fact that he tried to cram the entire book into one movie. And it, unless oh. you're watching the director's cut that's successively long, it's it's impossible to do. And I think that that was probably the one fault. And they're correcting that with this movie and that they only did a small portion of the book instead of the whole book. I'm not even sure... It, even got half the book in. It may have been more like a third. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm actually a little suspicious about that because having watched Dune through multiple times, I don't understand how they didn't greenlight the second one before this one was released. I don't think anybody could have gone to, through a viewing of this and not come out the other side saying, this is going to be good. But, you know, if you follow the news, Dune Part 2 was only greenlit in the last week. I feel like that's a publicity stunt or something like that. I don't feel it's genuine. Yeah, I don't know that that's necessarily... It wasn't so much that he had it banging at the door saying, let me do Part 2. From the research that I've done, it sounds like it was the director's decision not to to do part two unless part one was received okay so i think that's got to make it hard for filming (laughs) yeah it will yeah because it's been over a year since it was supposed to be done so i don't know i mean when it was it's been a year since it was supposed to be released so they've added an additional year before they knew how it was received So now that they know how it's received with acclaim, because it is amazing, I think that they now probably have at least a two-year to possibly three-year schedule before they can come out with part two. 
which is yeah. a long time to wait for a movie. But well, I IMDb is already listing it as uh, with a 2023 release date. Yeah, probably the end of 2023. Yeah, I am curious how this is going to affect. Were there sets that they could leave up, or did they have to tear all the sets down? Yeah. I guess there's not going to be a lot of crossover sets because, you know, the the story is picking up. In the desert now, yeah. It, yeah, with Paul and Jessica. Right. Yeah. They made the transition before Paul and Jessica got to the siege. So I think that gives them an entirely new set to work off of. And it made it look like they pretty much destroyed the city of Arrakis. The, yeah, know, the that was... City. <laughs> Intense. Yeah. So they'll have to rebuild that. So even if they had to rebuild the sets and they're different, it would just, they could pawn it off as when the Harkonnen came back, they, you know, rebuilt. So. And you know. I just completely spoiled the movie. So hopefully everybody has. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm curious if spoiling can really apply to it. Remake? A story that is from the 19th... Yeah, it's not only is it a story from the 1960s, but it's a remake of a... Wow, 84. Almost a 40-year-old movie. Yeah. And they both movies were quite faithful to the source material, so... Yeah. If you've seen one, you've seen the other. Except that you're just enjoying the beauty of a well-done movie. <laughs> Is worth going yeah. to see this one. Even if you absolutely hated the first movie, you have to go see this one because it is beautiful. It is absolutely gorgeous. And the director is the same director as the movie Arrival that we did a review of, mm-hmm. what, two years ago, three years ago? Kind of lost track of when that was. <laughs> that movie was slow paced and absolutely gorgeous. And this movie is also slow-paced and absolutely gorgeous. So that is just something that this director does. I think he just takes his time and and lets you enjoy the beauty of the environment that you're in. It's it's not just a movie, it's an experience. Yeah. It's funny because I was talking to the same co-worker that was worried that I wouldn't like the movie. Believe it or not, he had watched Arrival four times without getting the gotcha at the end. <laughs> And I was like, well, were you doing something else while you were watching the movie? And he says, yeah. He says, I always sketching while I'm watching the movie. So I've never actually watched it. I was more listening. I was like, well, that's why you missed the gotcha, because it was all visual. And if you aren't watching it, then you don't get it. And I think that while there's no gotcha in Dune that's all visual, there is a lot communicated through the cinematography in this movie that if you're not paying attention, you will miss. Yeah. And... I think that that just might be a hallmark of the director. It's like, I'm going to show, not tell, <laughs> which mm. is the perfect thing for storytelling. Yes. So that's, I think, the best part of this movie. If you haven't seen it, I have not seen it on the big screen. If I had time in my schedule to carve out to go see this movie, even though I've already watched it like two and a half times, I I would love to see it on the big screen because I imagine, I mean, as wonderful as an experience it is in my living room. I can't imagine how good it is on the, on the big screen. So a totally immersive environment. Those, those visuals, for me, uh, that was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. I am curious how much of it was CGI and how much of it was... Live, real On set. site. Yeah. yeah, yeah, live. 
because uh, <laughs> it's gotten past the point where I can tell the difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, some of the wide shots they may have taken in deserts and stuff, but, you know, it's it's hard to say how much of it it was. Yeah. There, there's that scene in the near the beginning of the movie, I guess calling it the beginning of the movie is probably a misnomer. <laughs> there's a scene where Paul is standing on the shore of the planet that they're leaving behind. I can't remember the Caladan. name of it. Thank you. And the ships are launching from beneath the water. Mm, yeah. And you know that's on location shot. But when you look at the ships in the background... You can barely tell that they're not real. <laughs> it's just so easy to believe that they're actually there. Okay, so according to IMDb, Caladan was filmed in Standlandet, Norway. That makes sense. That and, jives with the geography. Yeah, and the Arrakis Desert was filmed in two places – Wadi Rum in Jordan, which is a much used <laughs> uh, place. Yeah, to I was going to say desert. that's a Star Wars location. Yeah, I think. and and Liwa Oasis in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, hmm. and then the studio where they filmed was in Budapest. Okay. So Budapest. Budapest. <laughs> Budapest. Uh, we're throwing ourselves back like three movies. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, that's cool. I It was beautiful. And I'm sure that there are places on Earth that look like that. I mean... Yeah. It, I'm sure that there were on-location stuff, but it really was beautiful. In fact, I think near the end of the movie, I commented to the people that I saw it the first time with, I wonder where they filmed all of this. Because some of it really was quite spectacular. The dunes and yeah. all of that stuff. Well, on top of the the fabulous cinematography of this movie, the casting was really good, too. And I think they were spot on on almost everything, except for maybe Batista. <laughs> it's not that I dislike him as an actor. It's just that he looked too much like Drax. <laughs> so I kept getting pulled out of the movie into Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> That was about the only thing that, I mean, as soon as he showed up on screen the first time, I'm like, how did Drax get in this movie? <laughs> yeah, it it was all, it's, I mean, it's not like he was colored. Yeah. The same way that Drax is, but the lighting all made him in darker shades, mm -hmm. which made it almost silhouette-ish. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, I'm not a big fan of Batista as an actor, I've, I've, found him to be kind of one-dimensional yeah yeah <laughs> he plays really the one thing really well <laughs> but then i haven't gone out of my way to watch him either so maybe if i like watch that movie um the spy movie on amazon or something like that yeah uh, i might form a different different opinion and frankly he doesn't really do a lot in this half of the movie yeah and you know it was gorgeous this, his this appearance. Half of the story. Yeah, I mean, he was there as much as he is in the book. So I think that. Okay. I don't think that it really is supposed to center much on him. It's really supposed to center more on the Baron. 
anyway and because the yeah, baron is yeah. the truly grotesque figure that that you are set up oh. to hate <laughs> yeah and man uh stellan scaresguard who we know from the marvel movies he does such a creepily good job as a baron and his makeup is so good yeah it was much more believable than the uh, the, the other movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> he was almost comical in the other movie, so I think this this was definitely a better portrayal of the Baron. But and then the only other thing that I really that really caught me off guard was Liet Kynes uh, being a woman. In the book and in the original movie, he is a man, and I think there was probably some political, social reasoning behind mm. needing a a significant character. Uh, to be a woman in this movie, but I don't think it works. And the reason I don't think it works is because the culture that they're trying to represent in the Imperium is one where the women are like the voice uh, behind the power, which is the old monarchy system where women yeah. are are subjugated and their roles are wife, concubine, servant. The old behind every great man Thing. Yeah, yeah. And and so I really feel like they lost that by trying to imp- put a important woman in a role other than that. And I don't think it that needed to be there because they're not the whole point of Dune is to make a social commentary about the Imperium, about how bad the Imperium was. And so there was no need to put a title you know, like a a powerful woman character in there because I mean, it was just one of the many critiques of that society. And so it just seems to me that they kind of missed the mark on that. Not that Sharon Duncan Brewster did a bad job in that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I thought, I thought she did a spectacular job. It's the character of Liet Kynes is the character itself in the book. uh, Are they from Arrakis and a Fremen? I don't really remember. It's been years since I've read the book. But I do know that Dr. Kynes was kind of one of those imperial people who had gone to Dune and gone native, basically. Okay. So, and the, and it's kind of brought up in the movie a little bit because Paul made the point of saying that she w- had fallen in love with a Fremen warrior. And I think it was opposite in the book that he had a Fremen wife and children. Uh, okay. And so he had family among the Fremen. And so that was where he had kind of slipped the bonds of uh, his imperial conditioning and had become, he'd gone native. And, but the emperor, emperor and the baron and all of the people who ruled the planet had not necessarily realized that this ecologist, this scientist had gone native kind of thing. Okay. So yeah, I, I, I guess I'm not as invested in the, uh, the source material. So it didn't, not only did it not bother me, uh, it didn't even suggest to me that it might not, that it might be out of place. Right. Yeah. And I, th- and I mean, like I said, the whole point of Dune, the whole point of the yeah. novel, is is a commentary on that social structure. And mm-hmm. so if you're trying to correct what's wrong with the social structure, the way it's presented in the story, 
you're actually correcting the thing that that he was actually commenting on in the the narrative. So to me, I didn't think it was necessary and it was a bit of a shock, but I did not mind once I got over the shock of when they first presented Leah Kynes <laughs> and, and it was a woman, I was like, oh, wait a minute. She's a woman? That's weird. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, I can live with this. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it was a shock. I just had to kind of divorce myself from why it was a shock to me. And then I was okay with it. So Yeah, I think she did her – she played the – necessarily duplicitous nature very well. Yeah. It's just that in the Imperium, they would never have given a woman... Such a powerful position. Such a powerful position, right? Because women... Yeah. The most powerful women in the Imperium were the Bene Gesserit. And the reason why they were allowed to have power was because they were a religious order. Right. And they kept their power to just one gender. Right. By decree. Right. So, uh, to me, I think it just broke the narrative. Not in a way that, like, ruined the movie for me, because I still love the movie, and I'm not going to hold that one thing against the movie. I might hold Batista against it. I don't know, but... (laughs) (laughs) Everything else was great. So, I'm... That, that's just the one thing that kind of shocked me. And like you said, I'm probably a little more invested in the original source material. And, and it just seemed weird to me that, you know, the director and everybody made such a point of saying that they had, they were going to be faithful to the source material and, and that they just admired the book so much and, and it respected Frank Herbert so much that they were going to treat it with kids' gloves and just, you know, you know, actually make it into two long movies instead of one, just so mm-hmm. that they could be faithful to the source material. And then they broke the narrative with this one character, and that just kind of bothers me. Yeah, you remember the movie Noah mm-hmm. with Russell Crowe? And- I never watched it because it looked like a piece of junk. <laughs> yeah. So the reason I bring it up is because they made a really big deal about being faithful to the source material and having multicultural consultants <laughs> on on the development of the story and everything and it they, they put out a really poor movie yeah that was just it made me think that they might have been on peyote uh, <laughs> when, when they wrote it and then filmed it yeah so when a creative team says we're going to be faithful to the source material i give that about as much weight as you know a feather. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this instance, they did a very good job. I can't, I mean. No it, argument. This is probably about as close as you can get to a, a reproduction of a novel in a visual format without like completely destroying the the original. I mean, it's like yeah, super hard to go from novel to movie and not completely, you know, mess up the story in some way because a mm-hmm. visual media is just different in the way it presents a story. And, you know, that this was really the really biggest departure that they did. I can live with it. I, it I'm unhappy yeah. about it, but I can live with it. And after all, Dr. Kynes gets killed at the end, so it's not like I'm going to see it, her again. <laughs> if if we do, then it would really be a departure from the source material. <laughs> and the first movie. Yeah. So... 
the young man coming into power is easily one of my favorite story mechanisms, my story plot lines. Many of the books that I consider my favorites, like uh, like Raymond Feist's Magician book and several other movies, say they you know center around this type of thing. But you and I have discussed this many times in the past. I've always thought that Paul Atreides is a jerk. <laughs> and uh, I've never been fond of the character. But after watching this version of Dune, I realized that my assessment of the character of Paul in the book when I listened to it, which was well after I saw the 1984 version of the movie, was uh, sort of corrupted or poisoned by my assessment of the character Paul from the movie itself, from the original movie. And I can't remember the name of the actor who played him. But anyway, I, I always felt like he was a spoiled rich, spoiled and entitled rich kid who walked too easily into the role of power. I feel like power... Uh, and we'll actually talk about this in a little bit. Power should be thrust upon you, not something you should reach out and grab type thing. And I don't feel like the Paul Atreides of the movie represented that very well. And when we listened to the book, I, f I felt that, like that same thing was the case. But Timothy Sham Chalamet's version in this of Paul in this movie really did help to undo a lot of that that damage in my mind. Um, he did a great job portraying the youth of the character while communicating the burden of being an heir to a throne that he didn't necessarily want. So I I'm I'm not quite a believer, <laughs> but I'm getting there. Let, let let's see how the uh, Dune Part Two comes out. I think one of the things that has bugged me about the Dune story in the past is that it's clearly a messianic, you know, story at heart. But the Messiah seems divorced from a moral directive. It's more a a warlike Messiah than it is a moral or spiritual Messiah. And keep in mind, that's just my assessment based solely on the Dune book, because I haven't read any of the the ones that come after it. Hmm. In the, the 84 version, I don't remember House Atreides really taking their responsibility as lieges very seriously. But in this version, though, there are two scenes that in particular make it stand out to me, one where... Paul is out talking to the gardener taking care of the date palms. And his first response when he hears that the date palms drink the water of a hundred men every day, uh, his first response is, well, should we get rid of them then? And that actually spoke to me for two reasons. First, that his first thought was we should be providing this water to the people. And second, that he knew enough that he knew that he didn't know enough and he asked the gardener rather than just making the determination. Right. He went to the not person with the knowledge. 
Yeah, yeah. And that really, that helped redeem Paul's character, the character of Paul Atreides in my mind. And then the way that Leto handled the first meeting with Stilgar and made it clear that he was their liege and he took that responsibility seriously. That helped establish a, a much better tone in my mind too. So it's I think between the 84 version and this version, I much prefer this version, partly because the 84 version, you know, didn't age as well. But uh, this yeah. version help. I feel like this version is more morally focused. Uh, or rather, has a stronger moral backbone than the uh, than the eighty four version did. Yeah, yeah. I I guess you know, I think they were just different movies, and and I'm happy yeah. that this director didn't you know like try to do something tremendously different than the other movie, or try to do something the same as the other movie. I think he just he set the other movie aside, left it where it was. And he went back to the source material. And where the two movies yeah. were faithful with the source material, they were line for line the same. And But I think because he decided to cut the story in half, and he spent more time on the beginning, which was rather rushed. Uh, there, was, there were two things that were rushed in the 1984 movie. And I think that part of that was the character development of Paul Atreides as the son of the Duke. And you know, the things that he learned from his father and the way he was growing as a young man into a position of power. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of that got left out of the original movie because they glossed over it so quickly. And so, yeah, I think that this director took the time to put those little tidbits in. And like I said earlier, because he tells so much of the story through visual I think that if you're not paying attention, you'll miss like the flashes of the Bene Gesserit uh, seeding the prophecy into the 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 people of Doom yeah. Yeah. And, and things like that. That's not really spoken to as much in the dialogue. It's kind of just part of something someone's saying, but because they visually show it while they're saying it in flashes, you're like, oh, I get this, you know, and yeah. Yeah. so that a lot of the story ended up being told that way. And I really appreciate that. Yep, I agree. So let's jump into the themes. The first one and the, the one I really wanted to, to touch on was I really appreciated how Dune approaches the entire concept of duty. There's one line very near the beginning where Leto Atreides is answering the official call from the Emperor the, to take over the spice production on the planet of Arrakis. And he says, there is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we do not betray. And they make it clear through dialogue and, and looks and, you know, through general storytelling that Leto in particular and certainly Gurney Halleck and even to a lesser extent Duncan, they all know that that this is not a good thing. There's the old story of the emperor gives you a white elephant. It's a honorable gift, but it's one that's going to destroy you because you then have to pay to care for 
the elephant and and eventually it's going to bring you to financial ruin. Mm. House Atreides is is tasked with taking over Arrakis and it it doesn't say in the movie at least it doesn't say why he's taken it from the Harkonnens and giving it to Atreides except to say that it is that Leto thinks it's specifically to disrupt the politics of the houses so that the emperor and the imperium stays in power. I think it was kind of as, as the baron himself says when is a gift not a gift, you know. I think that it was kind of already known that it was going to be a trap for the Atreides to get them out yeah. of, out off of their planet where they were well defended and put them in a place where they were easily betrayed and destroyed because you know there was only the one heir. I mean Paul was it. Yeah. in House Atreides Falls. And I think the Duke knew that too. I think that kind of plays into the conversation that he has with Paul, where he's trying to wake up Paul to the fact that there's politics going on. And yeah. Paul's only, as a child, really, he's just a boy and he's trying to figure out, he's interested in the desert and he's interested in the Fremen and he's got his mind on things that have nothing to do with the politics of the situation. Everybody else is trying to wake him up to it. Yeah, I like how Leto still answers the call, even though he knows it's a trap. Yeah. And I felt like there was a a parallel there to our duty as Christians in how Leto handles it. As Christians, we're called to be representatives of our Lord among the people of the earth. We're, we're commissioned to go out and preach the gospel. Right. And we have a responsibility. We've been given a responsibility to manage the resources that are allotted to us. And that's everything from a global scale to a personal finances scale. Mm-hmm. And that's what House Atreides is doing with the, the planet of Arrakis. And even when we know absolutely with every fiber of our being that we're being called into a dangerous situation, we should go anyway. And the difference is that we have a God that we can believe in, yeah. that we know is not going to put us in a dangerous situation without purpose. Right. And in the case of Dune... He's not an emperor who's setting us up for destruction. Exactly. <laughs> and that that's the real difference. So when God calls us into danger, if we're absolutely sure of that call, we should go. Right. We don't have to worry about he's setting us up to fail, uh, because even if we do fail, even if we fail, we can be absolutely sure that it's still serving God's purpose. And that's not the same for the emperor, as we'll see when part two and maybe part three (laughs) comes out. And it reminded me of two verses. Uh, The first is uh, an oldie but a goodie. (laughs) (laughs) Proverbs three five, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on or do not rely on your own understanding. I always love the follow up to that. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Direct your paths, yeah. yeah. There's a, a campground song that's built on that. <laughs> and then the the verse after that is be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. <laughs> Sorry, I have to just keep going. That's one of my favorite proverbs. <laughs> it gets into the rhythm, doesn't it? Yeah. Leto, in particular, I felt like he 
embodied how leaders are called to be in the Bible. In Luke 17, 7 through 10, it says, this is Christ speaking to his disciples. Which one of you having a servant tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink, and later you can eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did what is he was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. And I think Leto is showing that he understands that he's not only serving the emperor, who he clearly has reason to mistrust, but he also makes it clear in this movie that he is serving the people of his fiefdoms. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah, the interplay with uh, Stilgar, the leader of the Fremen, or one of the leaders of the Fremen who uh, comes to the Duke. And, you know, the fact that, you know, everybody's so quick to jump against him because he's he seems to be unappreciative of the Duke's authority. But in the reality, he probably is, you know, of the level of the of a Duke and his own people. So, you know, it's that meeting of, of heads of state where you have to to have some give and take. And I think the Duke does it well, especially with Duncan Idaho at his side to kind of ease the way. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that that interplay was important. And sadly, I don't think if it was done in the original movie, it was not done in, in such a, an effective way. Yeah. The other half of duty that I liked, and, and we briefly touched on this already, is the duty of... Paul being the heir to the house of, of Atreides. And this also ties back into that extra time that the director spends with Paul and Leto on their home planet. There's this scene where they're talking in a graveyard, mm -hmm. the ancestral graveyard of, of house Atreides. And Paul says, what if I don't want to be a leader? And Leto responds, I told my father that I, did, I didn't want this either. Your grandfather said, a great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it, and he answers. And I think that's an important element of duty. If your duty is to be a follower, it's just as important as if your duty is to be a leader. And I think that that goes even into the, the you know the servant leadership, where you have leaders who think that they ought to be leaders, and they they're very arrogant in their leadership. And then you have the leaders who are doing it because it's a calling, not a means of a way of being an authority over other people. It's, it's more a servant leadership. Yeah. I think that that is an important way of viewing, like even our politicians, it's like who is a politician because they enjoy the power and who is a politician because they were called into that role to help the people that they were elected by. And you know, that they would just as soon do something else, but they chose to do politics because they saw a need and they, they stepped up to the duty. Yeah. And that ties back to the Luke 17 passage, too. Mm -hmm. But it's just another way that Leto is showing that being leader is another way of being a servant. Right. And, you know, it also harkens to, to Matthew twenty twenty five 25 through 28. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. 
it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mm. And that's how Leto is portrayed in, in this version of Dune. Far more so, I think, than the 84 version. And honestly, I don't remember him being portrayed this way in the book. But like I said, my enjoyment of the book was tainted by my interpretation of the 84 movie. Yeah. I can't remember whether I saw the movie first or read the book first, but I'm, I think I may have read the book first. And I didn't yeah. read just Dune. I read all the way up to God Emperor of Dune, which I believe is the fourth book. I know I stopped after a while. There are a lot of books in the Dune series, and I kind of yeah. got bogged down in it. it. It's like seven of them, right? Yeah, it. I got bogged down after a while. I just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> it's like, I got to stop. I'm not even sure I made it through the whole God Emperor of Dune. I think I stopped halfway through. I just couldn't finish it. <laughs> but yeah, I think the Duke is an important character because he's like the – he's a portrayal of the good leader, the leader that, that leads by example. He's a servant to his people. And then you have the the other side of that coin is the Baron who uses people like chattel and – yeah. He couldn't care less about the needs of his people. It's all to feed his own ambition and arrogance. And Yeah, it's all his. It's possessive. Yeah, he even refers to Duke as his Dune, his Arrakis. So yeah. he is very possessive and arrogant. And and so they, you know, the, the movie is obviously, the book and the movie are obviously playing those two different forms of leadership off of each other. Yeah. And it is interesting because yeah, they... when we researched Frank Herbert, you know, it, it turns out that he was very anti the Soviet Union, which was rather big in, in the time that this book came out. And so you, you might be able to kind of see the, the black and white way that he viewed politics in, yeah. the, in the portrayal of, of them here in the story. So the second theme that I wanted to discuss, and I wasn't really sure how to approach this one, but it bugged me, so I wanted to discuss it oh, anyway. Yeah. And that's how the Bene Gesserits in the Dune universe have been so behind-the-scenes manipulative for centuries, mm -hmm. thousands of years, apparently. There's a scene where the, the Reverend Mother is talking to Jessica and she says, but our plans are measured in centuries. We have other prospects if he fails his promise. Talking about whether or not Paul was a... Quisette's Hatterack. Quisette. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I wasn't sure I could pronounce it. <laughs> and then just a few moments later, Paul is questioning his mother, Jessica, about his role. And she tells him that the Bene Gesserits serve as powerful partners to the great houses. But there's more to it. For thousands of years, we've been carefully crossing bloodlines to bring forth a mind powerful enough to breach space and time, past and future, who can help us into a better future. We think he's very close now. Some believe he is here. And that kind of hubris <laughs> is... I, I just feel like we couldn't let that pass without mentioning it. Yeah, when you go into the, you know, the 
the depth of the novel and and what had been set up was that in this future world that Frank Herbert created, humanity was less than human. And because of the way it had been perverted by the spice and by, you know, their, their attempt to be like, even as they portray like the living computers that they had, uh, the guys who, when they would compute, their eyes would turn white because they were like mm-hmm. um, living computers. And the way they portray like even the Baron, he's he doesn't look, he's so grotesque, he doesn't look human anymore. Like he's a beast. Yeah. And and even Raban, his nephew, is called the Beast, you know, the Beast Raban. And so the whole concept behind it is that they, they've been losing humanity. It's like humanity is devolving. And the Bene Gesserit have been attempting to breed a pure strain of humanity back into at least into the high families to try and return the people back to humanity. And it's a very humanistic way of looking at it. And I agree with you that it's creepy. And actually, I think that was kind of the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> that Frank Herbert was trying to go he was trying to make the Bene Gesserit look bad. And and there's subtlety in his storytelling. I I mean even the Fremen, uh, the way that he presents the Fremen are, is actually a cultural repudiation as well. So he's not actually saying that anybody is good in his novel. It, he's showing how mm-hmm. everything is dysfunctional. And the Bene Gesserit's attempt to the reason they were trying to breed this perfect human male who would look where they cannot, who would be able to convert the water of of whatever I can't even remember now what it was called, water of life. I it was called the water of life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the convert it's actually a poison, and you have to be able to convert it molec- on the molecular level, or it would kill them. And only women right. have been able to do it, and every man who has tried has died. And but they are trying to breed a man who is a pure enough human that he is able to access that part of himself and be able to convert the poison and, and survive it. But their whole concept, the whole idea of it is that he will be subject to them. Like they will be able to rule him. They'll create this Kwisatz Haderach, right. but he will be subject to them. And through him, they will rule the universe. He'll be their puppet. He'll be their puppet. And, yeah. and, and Jessica actually disobeyed because... And this is all backstory that's in the novel that they obviously can't fit into the into a movie. But Jessica disobeyed because when she saw the Duke wanted a son so badly. So she went ahead and, and the Bene Gesserit were able to control whether they had male or female children. And so she was she allowed herself to have a male child for the sake of because she loved her husband and wanted him to have the son that he desired. But she was uh, of the she was of the pure Bene Gesserit line, and she was only supposed to have daughters, which is said in the movie. But that was the reason why is that they were so carefully orchestrating who bred with who was that they didn't want to have males that would then marry females that were of the wrong genetic heritage, and so they were yeah they were keeping it to females so that they could control which females made mated with which males and. So it was all part of their breeding program. But because Jessica disobeyed and had a, a son, which, you know, comes back to this whole mother goddess kind of feel that Frank Herbert set up on purpose, because she disobeyed, she was able to produce a son who was able to not be in the control of the Bene Gesserit. 
So, yeah. yeah, it was all part of the political setup. It it really it screamed hubris to me. Yeah, <laughs> even more than the Harkonnen, and it brought to mind for me two elements of scripture that really you know reach in and and slap you back down mm-hmm. <laughs> when you start getting too full of yourself. The first is the the clear one, James 4:14. 4, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be for you are like vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. <laughs> Boy, that that that, that really puts you in your place. You not feel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the other one is the original act of hubris uh, from Genesis 3, 2 through 5. The woman said to the serpent, we may not eat from the fruit of the tree, or excuse me, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So... You know, the serpent's like, oh, you can be like God, and and that's the first act of hubris, and look where it got us. <laughs> it's so funny. I've recently seen a meme floating around of, of fact-check faults, you know, like the like the, the serpent's <laughs> doing a, a Facebook fact-check. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that idea, yeah. <laughs> the serpent is fact-checking God. <laughs> So, you know, the way that the Bene Gesserits treat humanity like breeding stock is interesting to me. And it for me, it highlights that they're, at least in the presentation of the movie, there is no supreme being. Right. There doesn't appear to be a supreme being. Mm-hmm. I have since learned, and you probably know all about this, that all religions in the universe of Dune, all religions have com- been combined into something called the Orange Catholic Bible. Yeah. And the the idea of God is passe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's lost in the history books. Yeah. So it really does speak to the transition from knowing God, the supreme being, creator of all, creation and the ruler of reality to believing that humans yeah. are God. Right. Well, I think that is an absolutely terrific transition into the theme that I wanted to talk about. And that is that there is a humanistic religion, opium of the masses type thing going on in Herbert's book and in the movie. And it's also a cultural appropriation. So he based a lot of these peoples on actual existing peoples. So I think like the Fremen are roughly based on the free peoples that live in the deserts of Arabia. The um, Yeah. Uh, the Atreides were Spanish, right? Uh, I think they're either Spanish or they're Scottish because, you know, they like inner. Yeah, they had the bagpipes the bag in there. Bagpipes and stuff, yeah. But they had the bullfighting too. Yeah. So, so it, mostly European. I think that that, that kind of general European yeah. feel. And and then I think he was basing the Harkonnens on probably more like the Soviet Union and the dictatorial mm. communist type feel, which is really weird because in that. I mean, the whole point of socialism is it's by the people to to an extent that is 
That is not the Harkonnen. Yeah, right. But typically what communism becomes is the ruling of the elite, where the people are the slaves to the elite culture. So in a way, it it still fits. But it, it is interesting that, you know, he's basically appropriating culture. So, you know, the Fremen are obviously modeled off the desert cultures that give rise to Islam. And he presents them as you go forward, not necessarily in this movie, because they're in this movie, they're just the innocence of the primitive culture that is being subjugated by oppressors and striking back whenever they mm-hmm. can. That's their their role in this movie. But as you yeah. proceed through the series, you see them as the instigators of holy war. And that is basically that they're, they're fanatics who are driven to a, a bloody warpath. And that, I think he he basically modeled after the Islamic culture. So of the, of the mm-hmm. desert peoples. Yeah. And so he, he definitely appropriated some culture there. And then obviously, you know, the Bene Gesserit, I think he was speaking to Catholicism there, the organized religion and how it basically brainwashes people. So you have the, you know, like the Catholic schools and the, the Catholic invasion of culture, like how they would go in. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, like they would go into like the... The missionaries. The missionaries, and they would just indoctrinate the children, and then they weren't necessarily bringing salvation, like the the true gift of salvation. They were indoctrinating religion, not faith. Mm-hmm. And so you see the Bene Gesserit doing that in this culture. It's like they would send missionaries onto the planets and they would indoctrinate the peoples into a faith and and actually allow their ideals to be absorbed into the culture of the people. So like the Fremen have the prophecy of the Liza Nal Gabe, which is going to be their Messiah, but the Bene Gesserit have planted that into their culture so that it would prepare the ground, prepare the way for when the Quitsats mm-hmm. Hatterat came, that even though these Fremen absolutely hate the Empire, would never follow the Emperor, they will follow the Quitsats Hatterat when he arises because he is their Messiah, according to this implanted myth in their own culture. And so yeah. it's all, you know, this very planned, very, and like you said, it's like they've they're treating everybody like breeding stock because they have this long-term purpose and they're building this religious order to transform the universe into their control. And it, it made me think, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it's far from the truth of what Frank Herbert was trying to present, because it, it, as you proceed in the series, you know, with Dune Messiah and God Emperor of Dune, you really see him using Paul as a pawn of this religious movement and which Paul loses control of it. He is the Messiah. He is the Quisette Tadarak. He is the Lies and Gate, but he has no control over the movement. It's completely leaves him behind. It, it starts using mm-hmm. him more than he's using it. And Marx was the one who brought up the co- the concept of the opium of the masses, that religion is the way that you control people. And I think that that was the, you know, really the point of what Herbert was trying to bring about in this novel was that this is how you control people. This is how you create societal change is by indoctrination and through the manipulation of the culture and forcing people to see things your way over time where you can have the time to, to force. It. I mean, we've seen it right here in our culture today, mm, how yeah. 
you know, socialism has indoctrinated our children in the school system so that now when they're adult, they see it as this lovely thing that they can transform our culture in and make everything a utopia living. And that's that humanistic utopia. Again, it's like we can manufacture something out of humanity to make it better. And it's it's something that Frank Herbert was forward in seeing enough that even back in the 60s when he published this novel, he already hmm. saw it happening. And possibly it's because he was aware of what happened, you know, in the Soviet Union and how the, the people arose and put a horribly oppressive government into power, trying to get rid of another horribly oppressive government. So they replaced <laughs> one with the other. I think that the fact that this the director was so faithful to the source material in this uh, kept this movie from being culturally woke to the way that, you know, as we've watched movies over the last few years, we continually oh, yeah. have to point out the fact, you know, they have their token homosexual, they have their sex scenes, they have their all of these things that, that speak to the culture the way they want the culture to be. Right, right. They're, they're using the movies to create the culture they want. And in this movie, because he was the director stayed so faithful to the book, which was written back in the 60s, we get to see something less woke. In, in fact, the only woke thing about this entire movie is Liet Kynes being a woman. <laughs> yeah. But everything else about this is presenting the culture the way that Frank Herbert was making commentary about it. And I really appreciate that because we have fewer things to have to, to worry about. And we can stick to the pure discussion of what he was seeing culture doing. And... I don't know. I mean, perhaps he was leaning against Marxism, but I don't think he was a religious man. And he studied mythology. He based Dune on mythology, as we mentioned earlier. He was, I think, in a way, trying to show how stupid religion is, you know, how it can be used to manipulate people, but it's not true. It's a man-made thing. And yeah. when you read any science fiction where religion is key for the most part science fiction of that caliber are written by atheists and humanists so they they yeah. typically are pushing an anti-christian worldview and i say anti-christian not anti-religious because there is a massive difference between religion and christianity religion mm -hmm. is man trying to reach god out of his own power and christianity is god reaching man and yeah. it, because man is not capable of reaching God in our own power. And and we manufacture, we make God in our own image. And in Christianity, God made us in his image. And we are made in the image of God. We are valuable because of that. But we are fallen. And the only way we can reach God is because he's reaching us. And he made it possible through the death of his son to pay the penalty for our sin. And it's a completely different way of having faith and even the Catholic Church, and, I, and I'm and i hoping I'm not stepping on toes, because I know we've, we've kind of spoken up against Catholicism in the past, but I'm not saying that there can't be real Christians in Catholicism, but Catholicism rests so much on the tradition and the actions, you know, the, the penance and all of these things that we do to draw near to God. 
And it's a works-based faith. And I think that's why it lent itself well to the caricature that is in this futuristic society where God ceases to exist and it's all a man-made, a man-made faith and an attempt to, yeah. uh, to manipulate the future. So when you put man in charge, and of course, there's always that verse that, you know, that says that the heart of man is, is desperately wicked. But I wanted to lean in on Proverbs fourteen twelve, where it says there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. So everything that we do, when, when we're doing it in the power of, of our humanness, humanism, man-made anything will lead us to death because we aren't gods. We, as much as we try to set ourselves up to be God, we can never be God. And we simply cannot manipulate things to a, a utopia, an end result that is worth achieving. It's all in, ends in death. And I think that's a good reminder, especially looking at a story like this, where we see everything fall apart. I mean, that's the whole point of the Dune series, is that none of it works the way they were orchestrating it to work. None of it came out the way it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bene Gesserit lose control of Paul. And when he does come out of hiding and lead the Holy War, he leads it against them as much as he leads it against the Emperor. They have no control of him, over him whatsoever. and. The things that we set in motion as humans to try and fix the world, fix what's broken, we usually break it more. I would say we always break it more. <laughs> and yeah. that's, that works as both political and religious commentary because, you know, we always constantly trying to fix our government and make it better, make it work. And every fix that we patch onto this man-made organization is only going to make it worse because we can't fix it. Only God can. And as long as we don't have a God-centered government, the government is always going to fail because it's man-centered, it's man-made. I mean, it's kind of interesting the fact that you can take something that was written to basically a commentary against religion and agree with it. Yeah, organized religion is bad. I can get behind that. Because yeah, it's absolutely. organized religion is man trying to reach God, and you can't do that. So in First Timothy six seventeen through twenty, I think this is a an interesting passage. You know, it's, it's talking to Timothy, uh, who is a young young man who's attempting to become a Christian leader, and he's following in Paul's footsteps. And Paul writes to him, "Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant, or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth." But on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age. And I will interrupt to say, the coming age here is not a a human age, it's a spiritual age. This mm-hmm. is God's kingdom that, that the coming age is referring to. So that they may take hold of what is truly life. And once again, this is not life as in our physical existence, but eternal life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. And I know that may not what it be what it sounded like I was going to go with this discussion, 
But I, I, I think it's important to remember that, especially in the culture we live in, that we can't turn to human-made organizations to find our salvation. It's, it's an important reminder even more today. I, I know a lot of us take pride in being patriotic to being true patriots. We, especially our American, U.S. American listeners probably take great pride in being citizens of the United States of America. I know we have listeners outside the country, but when you take citizenship in your, in the, your human country, that is, this is a reminder that our true citizenship is in heaven and our true life is yeah. eternal life. And our goals should always be to further the gospel of Christ, no matter what is happening in our organized churches, our organized religion, our organized government. All of that is man-made, and it will only lead to death. And we need to be concentrating in this present age and setting our hope on God and not on the man-made constructions of, of this world. And we can only do that by believing in a inerrant scripture. Right. We can't view scripture through the lens of whatever culture is telling us today. We can't disregard passages because they say, say stuff that we don't like. Right. Everything in Scripture is there for a reason. It all points to the characteristics of God and what he has done for us. Right. And how we should be reacting to him. And when we move away from that, you know, it, it's death one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter if we move further towards ceremony and you know iconography or heavy catholicism or if we move towards progressive christianity and lgbt ministers and all of that if you're not on that straight and narrow path that is outlined by the scripture you're not on the right path yeah yeah or I guess the way it would be in scripture is the straight and the straight path is the the wrong path and the narrow and oh yeah <laughs> difficult path yeah, is the, sorry. <laughs> the correct one. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, this movie is only the first part, and I'm really curious to see. It, it's going to be a couple years. Hopefully, we're still podcasting when the second part comes out because mm. I definitely. Am up for reviewing this further and talking about you know the the holy war because that the next step is where Paul you know crosses becomes rallies the Fremen yeah well he becomes a Fremen and then he leads the Fremen into war against the Empire and it's going to be interesting to see how far they go because it's really hard to stop with at just at the end of Dune and not proceed into Dune Messiah because there's so much. Uh, more to the story, but yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the next movie, the next installment. Be and this is a story that needed to be told over a longer period of time. I think that I I don't remember it well, but I do think that the uh, Sci-Fi Channel when they did their miniseries did a much better job of telling the story because they did it as a you know a, a massive miniseries and then followed yeah. it up by a sequel miniseries and they were able to cover And it's a shame those are so hard to find. Yeah. You would have thought with this movie coming out that somebody would have pulled it out and thrown it on a streaming service somewhere, but Right, no kidding. 
There must be some uh, licensing issues there. <laughs> yeah. You know lawyers are involved. It's always <laughs> got to be the lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'd love to know what our listeners thought of the movie, if they've seen it. It's a good movie, and if you haven't seen it and you've listened to this discussion, you know, we really haven't spent a lot of time actually talking about the story so much as the setup for the story and the the mm -hmm. the background of the story. And, I mean, we really haven't ruined the movie that much. So <laughs> you really should go experience it for yourself and understand when you watch it that there are a lot of philosophies being woven into this movie and, and just be willing to apply scripture to it and really pay attention to what's being said, because it this is a humanist view of a future society. And so there's a lot of room there for us to discuss it and tear it apart and enjoy it uh, from a Christian worldview, because we, we can see that they're proving our point that humanistic philosophies and religion will take you down a very bad path. And that's what happens in this movie. So it kind of proves our point. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're making our point without, uh, with, by trying to do the opposite. <laughs> right. Right. So make sure that you come and join us in our new discord channel. I, I got to thinking, you know, we haven't had anybody join us as we're recording and it's kind of, sad because we've opened it up and we want people to, to come. And I got to thinking of maybe people are leery about thinking that when they join us, they're actually part of the recording. And I wanted to, you know, kind of explain that a little better. The way we have the Discord set up is we have a type chat room that allows you to type in comments to us while we're recording, but you cannot come into the recording channel and interrupt our recording. You can listen but you can't actually speak into the recording channel. And so you can come in, click on the recording channel, join us and listen as we record. And if you have any comments, then you can go into the type channel and type your comments and we can either read them and interact with those while we're recording, or you can come into our off air uh, after we wrap the episode and we can have a discussion about what we talked about in the episode. Mm -hmm. And, I really would enjoy having some of our listeners come in and give us that active feedback while we're recording, because it, you might bring in new topics that we haven't thought of, and it's always fun to be able to deal with those in the episode. And it's just Tim and I trying to come up with all of these themes and having some more heads put together on that would be wonderful. Yeah, it's the real-time feedback would be a, a nice change. Yes. You know, it's... Yes. Uh, I would like to thank our supporters. We gained another Patreon supporter this month and Isaiah Washington, who has been a member of our Facebook group and we're thankful for him to come on board. We'd also like to thank Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown, the second David Lefton and Peter Chapman for their generous monthly support. And if you want to give to us uh, as well, and any gift counts, I mean, a dollar a month, it can, you know, be as small as that, or you can give five, ten dollars, whatever fits into your budget. We really appreciate the support. It helps us continue to do what we're doing. Watching movies is actually not inexpensive these days. <laughs> <laughs> so even if it's just maintaining our server and our equipment and 
uh, being able to watch the movies that we review that is helpful to us having that support. So you can go to patreon.com slash are you just watching or you can go to paypal.com slash paypalme slash ayjw to support us. You can comment on the show notes for this episode at areyoujustwatching.com slash 122. And you can leave us a voicemail at 513-818-2959. Email us at feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. And you can join our Facebook discussion group. That is at areyoujustwatching.com slash community. That takes you directly to the group. But we would prefer that you come and join us in Discord which is at areyoujustwatching.com slash discord. That gives you an invite to our server when you click on that. I believe that's it. I'm not entirely sure what we're doing for December. I think it's probably going to be something Marvel. But as of this date, we are recording on the release weekend of Eternals, and it is getting horrible reviews. I'm not even entirely sure it's worth watching. Yeah. I'll I'll still watch it. <laughs> but I won't be happy, darn it. Yeah, it's getting absolutely trashed in the reviews right now. Uh I think Marvel went too far. They went a little bit too woke and this movie like hmm. crosses all of the the um lines that we hold to as Christians. I think we would have a lot of really negative things to say about it if we reviewed it, which we typically do not like to do all negative reviews. So I doubt yeah, we will review yeah. Eternals. Yes, No Way Home doesn't come out until December 17th, so that one will be too late, I think. Yeah, we might have to come up with something else. So if you have suggestions for our December, we could maybe do the Spider-Man movie in January. And, yeah, and just, or we true. could take December off. We can see how everything falls. So... All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.